You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. We are starting a new series in the book of Luke. I'm really excited about this new series in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 1 this morning. We timed it just right for the Christmas season that we would start this new series Uh, Next week we'll look at chapter 2, the birth of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke is is unique in in a lot of ways. One is that it was written by Luke, who was a Gentile, also a a doctor, a physician. Uh, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 4, Luke was a longtime ministry partner of the Apostle Paul. And something that you may not know is, is we often attribute Paul as the most prolific writer in the New Testament, but... Unless Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, which there's a lot of debate about that, who wrote Hebrews, and if Paul didn't write Hebrews, then that makes Luke actually the most prolific writer in the New Testament, based on sheer volume, because he wrote not only this gospel, which is the longest of the four, but he also wrote the book of Acts. And they're really uh, one book, Luke and Acts, they were written together to this gentleman that we'll read about in verses 1 through 4, a gentleman by the name of Theophilus. And Luke wrote to him with the express purpose of proving that Jesus was and is the Son of God who came to seek and to save that which was lost. That Jesus is God in human flesh, as the graphic says, fully God and fully man. That Jesus was and is everything that he claimed to be and that those that were following him claimed that he was. And it's apparent that Theophilus was probably someone who had learned about and heard about Jesus but was not yet a believer. And so let's read verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And so Luke makes it clear that he's writing to this most excellent Theophilus, probably a Roman official of some kind. He's writing to him to prove with certainty who Jesus is. And that's what we want to look at as we study the gospel of Luke. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? What was his purpose? And what does that mean to us? And we're going to move fairly rapidly through the gospel of Luke, looking at this book really with a wide lens, gleaning the major themes of the book and trying not to get lost in the details. So my, my desire is to be done with this gospel by the end of summer and, and move into uh, a new series uh, beginning in the fall. And so we're going to look at the entirety of Luke chapter 1 this morning, which is, is a lot to cover, 80 verses, uh, but I think we can do it. And I want us to notice three things, just kind of headings as we make our way through the text this morning. First of all, in verses 5 through 25, John the Baptist's birth announced... We're going to look at that. Then in verses 26 to 56, Jesus' birth announced. And then in verses 57 to 80, John the Baptist's birth. And so let's uh, let's look at verses 5 
to 25. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And I want to look at several things in this section. A couple things that I think have great application for our lives personally. First of all, is that godly people suffer difficulties and trials. It says that there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. He was of the division of Abijah. His wife was also of the priestly line. They were people of great pedigree. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. These were people who were serving God, who were godly people. And yet, it says in verse 7, they had no child. Now, for some of you, you might think, well, that sounds like a blessing, not a curse. <laughs> they had no child. And I mean, it's becoming even prevalent in our society for people not to have kids at all. But in this culture, it was a disgrace, as Elizabeth says at the end of this section, that God had taken away her reproach among people. It was a disgrace. You would be an outcast 
as a woman especially, who was not able to have children, you would have felt like you were letting your family down, your husband down, you were a failure. And I want us to to take note of the fact that godly people suffer difficulties and trials. Because we have this mindset, and certainly our culture has this mindset, that if you're doing the right things, that if you're walking with the Lord and you're obeying Him, and, and you're a good person, so to speak, which doesn't exist, then you shouldn't have difficulties. You shouldn't have trials. And that's why that, that rabbi back in the 80s wrote that book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Because everybody has that, that mindset. They're a good person. Why are bad things happening to them? That isn't fair. That should have happened to somebody else. And the fact of the matter is, is that we're all sinners. That we're all wretched to our core. And the question isn't why do bad things happen to good people. The question is why do good things happen to sinners at all. And we notice here that even godly people. You and I. People that are seeking the Lord. People that want to do what's right. That we will face difficulties. The Bible promises that. In fact the Bible says if you want to live godly in Christ Jesus. You will suffer persecution. You will have tribulation. And so it's not maybe, it's, it's a definite. Godly people suffer difficulties. And so if you're going through trials and hardships right now, don't look at it as if God is judging you or if maybe there's sin in your life and God is trying to, to bring you to repentance. I mean, that certainly is possible, but it's not the only reason that trials happen. There are many reasons for trials, and mainly in the life of the Christian, they're to point us to Jesus. They're, they're to create godly character within us. They're, they're to bring maturity into our lives. And you notice that Zacharias was, was there in the temple serving the Lord despite his difficulty. That's something else that I want you to notice. That verse 8 so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, that his lot fell to burn incense. Now, this is how it worked. There, there were so many priests by this time. You remember that the priesthood was set up in the book of Exodus. And by this time, scholars estimate that there may have been as many as 20,000 priests. Not everybody could be a priest. It wasn't like today where if you have a desire to be a pastor, you can become one. If you wanted to be a priest, you had to be born into a certain tribe, the tribe of Levi, and then into a certain family within that tribe, the tribe of Aaron, or the family of Aaron. And so there were probably upwards of 20,000 priests, and so they had to divide them into 24 groups. And these groups would serve twice a year for one week. And while they were serving at the temple for their week, they would cast lots, which was basically a, a stone that was black and white, and, and they would, it would help determine who was going to do what. And if the lot fell to you to burn incense, it was a huge deal. Because if it happened to fall to you, then you would never be able to do it again. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And it was an opportunity that most never had. And so when you had this opportunity, it was huge. It was a once-in-a-lifetime, thrilling opportunity for a priest to be able to go in to the holy place and offer incense. But I want us to notice that Zacharias is serving the Lord even in the midst of his difficulties. 
that we don't see it here that Zacharias says, you know what, count me out of this one. I'm not going to go and serve for my week this year. Things are just difficult. My wife is barren. She's depressed. I need to stay home and comfort her. Because something else that you need to realize is that priests, because they only served once a year, very often they had other jobs. They did other things. And so it would have been very easy for Zacharias to have isolated himself, to say, you know what, I'm not going to serve God. I'm not going to do what he's called me to do. I'm, I'm just going to quit because things are hard. And I think many of us are in that place right now because of the difficulties financially, because of difficulties that you're having at home, because of the circumstances of life, you're basically saying, I don't want to serve God. I, I don't really want to help others. I don't want to minister to other people. I don't want to read the word. I don't want to pray. I don't really feel like going to church. And when I do, I'm going to basically go and sit and, and take off right after it's over and, and notch a, another mark in my belt. But I really have no desire to be there because life's difficult right now. But I think Zacharias teaches us that even in the midst of difficulty, we need to be serving the Lord. We need to be worshiping the Lord. We need to be looking outside of ourselves and desiring to serve other people. Another thing that we learn from this account is that our lack of trust and faith in God has repercussions. While Zacharias is there offering incense, which basically would amount to him entering into the holy place with the menorah, the seven-branched candelabra on the left, with the table of showbread on the right, and then to his front would be the altar of incense. And there on the altar of incense would be red-hot burning coals, and they would put the incense on there, and it would dissipate, it would rise up to the Lord. It was a, a way to symbolize prayer. And the priest would go in, and he would seek the Lord, he would pray on behalf of the people, and that's why all these people were outside. It was a, a daily thing. We think going to church once a week or maybe once a month is, is a big deal. The, these people were, were so dedicated to the Lord. Every day before the, the sun rose, they were there at the temple and it was a celebration. The priest would go in and he would offer incense as a way to, to symbolize their dedication to God, as a way to symbolize that they wanted God's intervention in their life. And you have to remember that 400 years has gone by from the, the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, until this point. 400 years has gone by and God has not spoken at all. There's been no prophet. There, there's been very little vision. There's been basically silence from God. And when you read the Old Testament, you, you see that the people were constantly hearing from God. And now 400 years goes by and nothing. And Zacharias goes in what for him was a lifetime opportunity, certainly, but it was still a daily routine that the priest did. And he goes in to offer incense. The people are there. Certainly it's a routine. Certainly they're used to this. They, they, they want to get on with their day. But little did they know what would happen on this particular day, that God was going to speak to them in a powerful way, that God was going to begin to do a work that had been in his plan from the very beginning. And this angel presents himself to Zacharias and tells him he's going to have a son. A son who would be the forerunner, who would be the precursor, who would be the one that would prepare the way for Jesus, for the Savior, John the Baptist. 
But Zacharias doesn't believe the angel. He says, look, I'm, I'm old. My wife's well advanced in years, which I love how politically correct Zacharias is. He says, I'm old. My wife's, well, she's well advanced in years. It's a good way to put it. And because of his lack of faith, he would be deaf and mute. And I know that he is deaf because later on in this chapter, we'll see that they have to write out something for him. So obviously he couldn't hear. And this word mute in verse 20 really speaks of being deaf as well. And so because of his lack of faith, because he didn't trust God, Zacharias would be deaf and dumb until his son was born. And what that speaks to us is that our lack of faith, you guys, that our lack of trust in God has repercussions in our life. It limits our ability to minister to others. Because now, he's supposed to go out and to give a word to the people, a priestly blessing to the people. It happened every day. They were expecting it. And they did this every day. And so they knew how long it should take for Zacharias to be in the temple. And when he doesn't come out, if they had watches, they would have been looking at him. Like, come on, what's going on here? They would have been calling, you know, work. Hey, sorry, you know. Zacharias, I don't know what in the world he's doing in there. It's taking forever. You know, it's like the, a long sermon. I don't know what this guy's doing. They're waiting. And they're marveling that he's in there so long. And now he comes out and they're expecting him to have something to say. And yet he can't say anything because of his lack of faith. Because of the, the repercussion for his lack of trust in the Lord. And you guys... When we doubt God, when, when we don't trust the Lord, when we don't believe His Word, it limits our ability to minister to people. Like you might want to say something to somebody, but you really have nothing to say because of the way that you've lived your life, because of your lack of faith, because of your lack of trust in the Lord. Because people have seen you, and they've seen the way that you live, and now you're wanting to say to them, oh, well, well, this is the truth, and this is what you ought to do. And, and you can't because essentially you've become mute by your own actions. And even if you do speak, it falls upon deaf ears because people don't respect you, because they don't see it in your life. And so our lack of faith, our lack of trust, our lack of obedience to the Lord, it has repercussions. In our life, it limits our ability to minister to other people. And Zacharias went home and his wife conceived. Now, that stands in stark contrast to the conception of Jesus that we'll look at. Because Jesus was born of a virgin. Where John the Baptist was born very normally. And notice that even though this birth was surrounded with an angelic visitation, even though this was a divinely appointed birth, and that God was, was all over this situation, it still was very much normal and ordinary in the way that God brought this to pass. Zacharias went home, he and Elizabeth had sexual relations, and then they conceived. That there, was, there was nothing supernatural about it, it was very normal. And God uses us and does supernatural things in us in very normal ways. In everyday life. Well, the next thing I want to look at is that Jesus' birth is announced in verses 26 to 56. It says, Now in the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's gestation period, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name 
was Mary. Now, the first thing I want us to notice about this is that the Lord does amazing things through ordinary people, places, and circumstances. This is Mary, the one that would bring the Savior into the world, the one that would fulfill all of these Old Testament prophecies, the the Messiah that they had so anticipated, but they didn't exactly expect it to come through this person in this place through these circumstances. Because when we think of God's work, we often think of grand things, of gifted people. We think of, of things that are very much in the spotlight. But here was this peasant woman, Mary, probably 12 years old, at the oldest 14. She was betrothed to a man named Joseph. Girls were typically betrothed by the time they were 12 years old. Now that kind of offends our Western thinking, but that's the Eastern culture. She would probably have been 12, no older than 14 years old, probably illiterate, most definitely poor, from a hick town that even Nathaniel later would say, what good has ever come from Nazareth? This was a town that we call flyover towns, a, a town maybe a lot like Prineville, a small town that nobody thinks that anything good can come out of that place. What, what, is, what can possibly happen there? From a girl who is a young illiterate, impoverished peasant, uneducated, destined to repeat what every woman before her had, to have multiple children, to be poor her entire life, to basically be under the thumb of her husband. Do you think that there was any way at all that she expected God to come and to speak to her and to impregnate her with the Messiah? I don't think so. Not in any way, shape, or form. And I think what that speaks to us, you guys, is the Lord wants to do amazing things through us. No matter our upbringing, no matter where we live, no matter how much money we have, how much education we have, no matter the circumstances of our life, God wants to do amazing things. And you can keep making excuses. Well, God could do that, but look, I mean, I don't have enough money. Well, You know, the Lord could do that in our church, but, you know, look, I mean, we're in a small town and that's not going to happen here. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Well, the Lord might do that, but I'm just not very smart and he's not going to use me. And if you keep saying that, you're going to continue to limit what God wants to do. God can do anything through anybody at any place at any time. This was not at all what they were expecting, and yet God did it. And the key to this is found later on in verse 37, where it says, For with God nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The key to this was her faith coupled with God's unlimited ability. For with God nothing will be impossible. Coupled with her faithful obedience by saying, Look, I'm the maidservant of the Lord. Do with me as you please. She didn't make excuses. She didn't say, I can't do this. She does ask, how is this going to happen? I haven't even known a man, which I think is a legitimate question in the sense that typically babies are born through two people. She recognizes, hey, I'm a virgin. What's going what's to happen here? And God will give her an answer. Comes to a virgin from a hick town in the middle of nowhere, and that's who he chooses. He doesn't go to Jerusalem where 
all of the religious activity is happening. He doesn't choose a family of nobility. He chooses a nobody. And that's why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Do you fit that? A foolish thing of the world. God wants to use you. And if you continue to tell God why he can't use you, you will limit what he can and wants to do in your life. And having come in, verse 28, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. She has been chosen of all the women who have ever lived, she has been chosen. Now, some groups want to make Mary into a deity all of her own. But we see here that Mary was just a young girl, just like any other young girl, who was chosen by God for a purpose, just like you have been chosen by God for an express purpose that he has for your life. Everything that Mary had was given to her. She had nothing intrinsically within her that was something to be praised. She's the highly favored one. She was chosen by God. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which was a common Hebrew name, Joshua in the Hebrew. Jesus is the Greek translation of that. Simply means that Jehovah is salvation. A fitting name for Jesus who would bring salvation. For the one that would come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And, and you know that in our studies in 1 Samuel, we, we've been learning that David would be the one through which the Messiah would come. That David's throne would never end because Jesus would sit on that throne. And Jesus, verse 33, will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? Or how can this be since I'm a virgin? And this debate that goes on today about whether Mary was a virgin or not is just really ridiculous. I don't think the Bible could be any more clear that Mary was a virgin. It says it three or four times. There's no ambiguity. You either are a virgin or you're not. There's, there's no ambiguity to that. I guess there is some today. But let's just say there is no ambiguity to that. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now again... Some people have read into this and, and, and made this out to be uh, something that it isn't. There's nothing sexual about uh, what is going on here. The, the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary, overshadow her. It's the same word that's used in the Old Testament to describe God's Shekinah glory that would be in the Holy of Holies. It's the presence of God. It's the same word that's used when Jesus transfigured himself on the mountain when he revealed who he was. The, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted 
Elizabeth. So as soon as Mary hears this news, she leaves to go to Elizabeth's house because she had heard, they're, they're related, she had heard the unusual circumstances surrounding Elizabeth's birth. And she made the connection. And she travels the 80 to 100 miles that this would have been, probably a three or four day journey. She travels there. She, she goes with haste. She's excited because she knows that all of the Old Testament prophecies leading up to the Messiah, everything that every Jew has ever been anticipating is being fulfilled through them. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. What I notice here, you guys, is that there is joy in discovering Jesus. As soon as... Mary enters the house. Elizabeth feels John the Baptist, six-month-old fetus, leaping in her womb. Now, those of you ladies that have had babies, you, you know what it's like to, to have that baby turning and rolling and kicking and, and the feeling that that, that is. And, and we can't even understand that as men, to have another human inside of you. Kind of creeps me out, actually. <laughs> But you can't even really understand that as a, as a guy or as a young girl here who's never had kids or as a person that's never had children. You, you can't understand that. But the word here is not turning or rolling or even kicking. The word here is leaping like, like a deer leaping through a field. This wouldn't have been just a, a soft kick. This would have been John the Baptist leaping up and down in the womb. Now, something that's interesting about this as an aside, is that we learn that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born. We see here that John the Baptist recognized the presence of Jesus before he was even born. And so I think that speaks a lot to answer the question of whether an unborn child is really human or not. Because even Jesus here, as a three or four day old zygote in the womb of Mary, is so filled with the power of the Holy Spirit that John the Baptist, as a fetus, recognizes his presence. And so any debate or any question that might be in your mind about an unborn child, I think this passage answers that question. Now, I don't want to get into the politics of all of that, nor do I want to put condemnation on you if you've had an abortion. But know this, that God wants to forgive you and God wants to cleanse you and God wants to do an amazing work in your life, despite choices that you may have made. But know that it was sin. Know that it was wrong. And you need to confess that to God. And you need to, to turn that guilt and that shame over to Him so He can replace it with, with peace and rest. But there is joy in discovering Jesus. John the Baptist proves that. That when we encounter Jesus, it brings joy into our life. And maybe... Right now, maybe because of the circumstances of your life, you haven't had a lot of joy. You've been pretty much dreading every day. And you're thinking, what am I even living for? What's the purpose of my existence? Why am I here? And know this, that Jesus wants you to encounter him. 
that Jesus wants to touch your life in a new way, that Jesus wants to do something new and fresh and amazing in your life to give you renewed hope and renewed passion and renewed perspective. And if you've had that perspective, like, what am I even doing? What's the purpose of life? It's because you haven't experienced Jesus. And you need to do that this morning. Maybe you've never experienced him. Maybe you've never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he wants that for you. That's why he came to the earth. To seek and to save that which was lost. John the Baptist recognized how amazing Jesus is. Do you recognize that this morning? Do you recognize the power that there is in experiencing Jesus? If you've never known him, I invite you to give your life to him this morning. We're going to have people up here to pray with you. And I invite you to come and to ask Jesus to be your Lord. To ask Jesus to take your sin and to replace it with his righteousness. To begin a relationship with the living God. We're also going to have people here to pray with you. If maybe you've just been in a humdrum, lackadaisical very mediocre Christian experience and you haven't experienced Jesus and, and you haven't been touched by him in a long time and he wants to do that. He wants to give you joy like he gave John the Baptist. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Of course, this, this song, this psalm that, that Mary sings is, is called the, the Magnificant. It's very famous even in, in secular literature. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. She recognized that this was ridiculous. Why would God choose me? She recognized that this was an amazing experience. He regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her, that is Elizabeth, for about three months and returned to her house. The last thing I want to take notice of in this section is that God's amazing works in our life should produce a heart of worship. When, when you look at your life and you think, God, why did you choose me? God, why are you using me? God, how in the world are you doing such amazing things through such an unamazing person. God, how, how are you doing this? This is, this is awesome. When you look at your life and you see all that God has done for you and all the blessings, it should produce worship. And I think it is sad when, when you look at a group of people and, and we're, we're having that time of corporate worship and it just seems very humdrum. It just seems very methodical, very routine, just mouthing the words or maybe not even that, staring off somewhere, thinking about something else. And I'm not saying that our posture is any way reflective of our heart, but I think there is a time where you're so overcome with the emotion of what God has done for you that you do raise your hands to the Lord, that, that you do kneel before God, that you do just lay out before Him, prostrate, that, that you do 
have emotion. It's okay. Now, we never try to drum up emotion for the sake of emotion in the midst of our corporate times of worship. And you're probably not going to hear us say things like, let's give God a clap offering or anything like that because it's just not our style. It, and, and we don't try to drum up emotion. But when it happens very spontaneously and appropriately, it's a good thing and it's okay. It's okay to show some emotion. It's okay to be demonstrative in your worship. It's okay to show people that you love Jesus. And when you're overcome, when you recognize and realize the amazing works which God has done, it should produce within you a heart of worship. Do you have a heart of worship? Not just here, not just Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, not just our corporate gatherings, but do you have a heart of worship wherever you're at? Is your life worshipful to God? Well, the last thing I want to look at is John the Baptist's birth, verses 57 to 80. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered. And she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. Something I noticed there is that good friends and loving family rejoice with those that are doing well. Because I think it would have been very easy for relatives and friends of Elizabeth to be like, yeah, I'm better than her. She doesn't have any kids and and so that elevates me above her. I mean, she's a priest's wife and she's from a good family. She's got it all together. It suits her right not to have any kids. I mean, everything's just perfect for her. At least I've got some children. At least I've got that over her. I can feel good about myself. Oh, she's pregnant? She's like 65 years old. Dang it. I had that over her. And you know what that's like? Because we want people to fail. We want people to fall on their face because it makes us feel better about ourselves. It's the ultimate pride when you rejoice in the failings of others. Do you rejoice when others succeed? That, that's a good friend. That's a loving family member. That's somebody that truly cares about others. Rejoicing with those that rejoice. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, John the Baptist. And they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. But they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. Just kind of picture this. You're in the hospital. You have a son. All your family's around. And and all the nosy family's like, aren't you going to name him after grandpa? (laughs) Well, Well, what about Uncle Joe? He died this year. And, you know, I think it would be really good that you named him Joe because that would be a tribute to him. And she's like, no, we're going to name him John. John? There's not a John in our family. Are you out of your mind, John? Come on. There's not anybody named that. This is stupid. And this is just a classic Jewish family. Just getting involved in things that they have no business getting involved with. So now they go to Zacharias. They make signs to his father what he would have him called. And this proves to us that Zacharias was not only mute, but he was deaf. And and so they're sign languaging him before there was even sign language. They're, they're writing stuff down. They're like, hey, your wife's going off the wall. She wants to name him John. You think that's ridiculous, right? So he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying his name is John. So they all marveled. I don't think they marveled that they were communicating and that they were on the same wavelength because obviously Zacharias 
and Elizabeth could write stuff down. They had wooden tablets that were coated with wax. And obviously, they could communicate. I don't think that's what they marveled. I think they marveled that they were going to name him John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, just like we saw that Zechariah's lack of faith, lack of trust, his disobedience, limited his ability to minister to others, now we see that his obedience to God opened doors of opportunity to minister to others. And so maybe you have blown it at work with your family. Maybe they look at you and they say, why would I listen to you? Why would I want Jesus when your life is a mess, dude? What would I want with that? There's nothing about Jesus in your life that makes him attractive to me at all. Maybe that's going on. Maybe you've ruined your witness and you've limited your ability to speak and to minister to others. There is opportunity for you to be redeemed. Just begin to obey God. Just begin to do what he puts in front of you like Zacharias did. And now all of a sudden he can hear, his tongue is loosed, he can speak and everybody is all ears. And fear came upon them. And it was discussed throughout all of the region. And and even though you've blown it, you guys, it's not too late. God still wants to use you. God can redeem that. He can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Your obedience to God, whether you've been disobedient to him for years, your obedience to him will open up great opportunities for you to minister to other people. Just begin to do what he puts in front of you. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And so Zacharias is is now prophesying. And remember, there hasn't been any prophecy for 400 years. And Zacharias begins to open his mouth and out from his mouth pours this amazing prophecy speaking of what his son is going to bring. His son is going to be pointing the way to Jesus, the Messiah, the one that will redeem his people. God has raised up a horn, and and the word horn speaks of strength and power. And and you hunters can can resonate with that, that that horns speak of of power. He raised up a horn of salvation, the, the power of the gospel for us. In the house of his servant David, that this message that the Messiah would come through David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, speaking of the cohesiveness of the gospel message, that it was planned from the foundations of the world. Adam's sin did not take God by surprise. God wasn't shocked. He didn't say, okay, let's go with plan B. He he knew it was planned from the very beginning, since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, chiefly death, the greatest of our enemies, separation from God, and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, that Abraham would be the father of many nations. How was that? Through faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham was the father of faith. Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus is the son of Abraham, Galatians 
tells us. And so it would be through the Davidic covenant. It would be through the Abrahamic covenant. He's tying all of the promises from the Old Testament together. And that's why, you guys, the Old Testament is, is not done away with. The Old Testament is, is God preparing the way for the new covenant. They work hand in glove. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before Him all the days of our life. And you, child, speaking of His child, John the Baptist, you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare His ways. You will go before Jesus and prepare the way for Him. To give knowledge of salvation to His people. How did He do that? He went out into the desert and began to preach the word, began to tell people to repent and turn to God. Again, not exactly the way that you would think it would be done. Okay, John the Baptist, you're going to be the prophet of the Messiah. You're going to be the one that prepares the way. So I'm, I'm going to be your agent. I'm going to help you out here a little bit. I'm going to be your PR guy, and we're going to help you to do a good job. And, and so this is what I think you ought to do. I think you ought to set up shop in Jerusalem. I mean, it makes sense. It's the religious... Center of, of, of the land. No, I think I want to go out in the desert. The desert, there's nobody out there. You can't plant a church in the desert. There's nobody there. That doesn't make any sense. Well, that's what God's called me to do. Okay, well, if you're going to do that, then what we want you to do is, is just be you know, real friendly. Always have a smile on your face. Because if you're going to point people to Jesus, you've got to be nice. You've got to be friendly. You've you got to represent. Don't be talking about sin and judgment. Don't use repent. That's not a word we use anymore. No, I think I'm going to talk about all of those things. Well, nobody's going to come. I mean, just face it now. You are destined for failure, my friend. I'm out. I quit. I'm no longer your PR guy. Find somebody else. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did. He went out where there wasn't anybody. They came to him. He dressed ridiculously. I don't know if it was on purpose, but like, you know how we judge people by the way they dress sometimes? Well, I think we would have thought, who is this loony bin? He's dressed in camel's hair. He eats locusts. I mean, hey, I, I don't think there was a shortage of bread. Why do you have to eat like that? Dipping locusts in honey. The guy was a little eccentric, and yet God used him powerfully. People came to him. There was a revival like they had never seen before. People were being baptized. John was telling people, you are a sinner. You need to turn from your wickedness to God. You need to repent. And listen, you guys, today, like no other, pastors, churches, and leaders are told, if you want to grow a church, don't talk about sin. Don't talk about the blood of Christ. It offends people. Don't tell people they need to change their life. Don't talk about the judgment of God. Just be nice. That's basically the, the key. Just be friendly. Smile a lot. Offer a comfortable atmosphere in a good location, in a growing city, that's where you want to be. And I'll tell you what, that if that's how you grow a church, I don't want any part of it. And I think you can grow a church by preaching the gospel in all of its offensiveness. Because more than anything else, you guys, people want truth. People don't want it to be candy-coated. People don't want you to sell them the gospel. We got to quit trying to be salesmen, telling people that if you'll just come to Jesus, he'll make your life better and, and you'll have lots of friends and, and money and, and everybody will like you. And people walk away and they're stoked. I mean, it's like they just won the lottery. 
You mean I just got to pray this simple prayer and all these things are true and then a week later they realize that you're a liar. And it's no wonder that people aren't reaching maturity in Christ. See, John the Baptist told them the truth and that's what people need more than anything else is the truth. The truth and the simplicity of the gospel. You will give people knowledge of salvation by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring or the dawn of the Messiah from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And maybe this morning you are sitting in darkness. You know that you need help. You know that you need Jesus. And I want to encourage you to invite him into your life. The light of the world who wants to to take you from darkness into light, who wants to take you from hopelessness and despair to hope and to purpose, who wants to give you meaning for life, who wants to take away your guilt and your shame and, and give you forgiveness and restoration. So the child, John the Baptist, grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. And the last thing is that John the Baptist's purpose, his entire purpose for existence, was to point people to Jesus. And if you're a Christian here this morning, your purpose in life is to point people to Jesus. That's what we want to do every time we get together, is point you to Jesus. I don't want to give you a good thought for the week. I don't want to give you some pop psychology. I want to give you a pep talk. And I can do that, but that's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to point you to Jesus to open the word of God to you and to show you how it points to Jesus because every page in the word of God points to him. And when you recognize that and you buy into that in your own personal life, then you will begin to point people to Jesus in your life, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. People will be drawn to Jesus just like they were through John the Baptist's ministry. Are you pointing people to Jesus? Are you pointing them to something else? Guys, we don't want to point them to a church. We don't want to point them to a book. We don't want to point them to religion. We want to point people to Jesus. That's our goal. He's the only hope in this life. My encouragement to you, if you're a Christian, let him overshadow you this morning. Let him touch your life in a way that he hasn't for a long time. Experience Jesus that you might have the joy that John the Baptist did so that you can begin to point others to Jesus the way John the Baptist did. If you're not a Christian here this morning, man, let this be the time that you turn your life to him. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, lots of of information, Lord, lots of content here to cover. And Lord, there was something for everyone. God, I'm sure that you've spoken to each one of us. You've you've given us things to apply into our lives. And God, I pray that we would let down our pride, that we'd step out of our comfort zone, that God, we would approach someone and ask for prayer. Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you, God, that you would grip their hearts. Show them how much you love them and that you want to have a relationship with them. God, I pray for for those of us that do know you, that Jesus, we would ask you to, to touch us, that we would experience you in a way that we never have before, that God, you would fill our hearts with joy so that we could leave this place pointing other people to Jesus. Lord, continue to do your work in us. God, may we leave here changed, refreshed, built up, God, may your word not just go in one ear and out the other. God, may we not be hearers of your word only, but doers of your word. God, that we might produce fruit for your glory. 
Lord, bless each one in your name. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.